for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Take your Bibles and open to the book of Deuteronomy with me this morning. Deuteronomy. I hope you've gotten a bookmark that looks a lot like this. It says shaped on one side uh, with four foundational pillars. And on the other side it says um, five resolutions. We're in a series entitled Shaped for Glory Through Mission. A walk through Deuteronomy. And we've already covered the foundation. We covered the first resolution last week. And this week, we're at least going to start the second resolution. And so we'll, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. What I want to say to you, um, and I probably will say this every week just to make sure that it is loud and clear. But, but I want to say this to make it understood what we're doing through these resolutions God engages us to participate in our spiritual growth. And resolutions help us to understand what God's doing in us through the gospel, leading us into the truth of his word. And so uh, this imagery is of us taking hold of what Christ is doing in us because of what Christ has taken a hold of us for. So it's this imagery of participation in the salvation of our life, in what we would call the sanctification or the redeeming work of God within us. And I want this series to be radically practical for you. Uh, The worst thing that can happen is for a preacher to stand up and yell through the Old Testament and never bring it down to real life. And you know I'm going to yell... So since we're in the Old Testament, I want it to be radically practical for you. So I hope and pray that it is. Uh, Today as we go to resolution number two, which basically says shape my life, I want to start with kind of the big idea of the sermon and then the resolution and then we'll dive in. The big idea this morning is simply this, that, that God shapes a life by the gospel of Jesus Christ to live in obedience to his word in our character, in our conduct, and in our conversation And so if we take that big idea and turn it into a resolution, it's going to sound like this, that I resolve by God's grace through the Holy Spirit at work in me. Now, let me pause because that that begins every resolution that we have. I resolve, in other words, I'm committing that this is what I want to engage in with my life. But hear this, by God's grace through the Holy Spirit in me. That says this, that says that it is not first and foremost our work, but it is the work of God through Christ on the cross and by the abiding Holy Spirit within us that is being worked out, okay? That is so important because the gospel, the gospel is what is bringing this work about and that's what it means to talk about God's grace through Holy Spirit at work in me. To do what? To shape my life by God's word, to live Christ-like in my character, both the way I understand my identity and how I form my beliefs and the attitudes that I allow to be prevailing, to be Christ-like in my conversation, not only the words that I use, but the speech with which I use them and the counsel that I offer through them to other people and even to myself too. 
And finally, in our conduct, and not just our actions. Obviously, conduct is actions. But through those actions, the way I influence other people and the witness that I bear to the world. And so that's our resolution. And I thought that I was planning to do the first half of this resolution today. And it turns out I only did the first fourth of it. Uh, because it's a really important one for us as a church. And I'm, I'm more committed to us talking about what we need to talk about than I am just to us getting done with something. Okay? So that's where we're headed. Deuteronomy chapter 6 will be there in just a moment. I, I, um, it's been kind of a long week for me. I had two funerals this week. Um, one on Monday morning and one on Saturday morning. Uh, this is not a surprise to most of you, but um, Sandy Lubert, one of our faithful saints uh, for 10 years, uh, passed away uh, after fighting cancer for over 20 years in her life. And so we were able to uh, celebrate her life Monday morning. And you know what? A funeral where you celebrate God's children is there is mourning and grieving involved, but it genuinely is a celebration of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and what the gospel is all about. And so it was so beautiful for us to be able to do that. And then Saturday morning, um, my grandmother passed away early in the early hours of Wednesday morning, and we buried her on Saturday morning. And the same thing, my grandmother lived a faithful, godly life all, all of my life and, and even before and so as I'm thinking this week about this passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy 6 and how the gospel shapes our life, I'm thinking about people that have influenced my life. And, and, and ultimately, you know, when you, when you perform a funeral, when you attend a funeral, it has a way of causing you to think about life, right? Hopefully it does that. And so what I found myself doing, uh, my dad officiated my grandmother's funeral and I was just kind of an aide in uh, that officiating and so he read the scripture and gave a few comments at the graveside and it was my duty to step up and offer the final prayer and so as I stepped over at the head of the casket with the tent and people sitting here and standing all around it just hit me in a fraction of a second that here I would stand and and to my left was my grandmother just to the right of my feet was the foot uh, the footstone of my grandfather who we buried there three years ago. Just in front of me were my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother's grave, which was mostly covered with the grass that they lay out to put the chairs on. To the side of that was the headstone of the Mason-Taylor family, and to the other side of the headstone were four or six Taylor graves, I think six, uh, which was my great-great-aunt, and her husband, and her sister, and her husband, and then uh, two other that, that I actually didn't know. But as I stood there, it just hit me in an instant. I'm standing in my own Hebrews 11. I'm standing in the hall of fame of faith of my family. And it just hit me that that's a very influential, formative influence that has shaped my life. These people. These people. And so... I was struck by that, and I gave thanks for these people because they've been so influential to shape my life as a Christian. And as I came to this passage of Scripture preparing to preach today, I want you to consider today uh, the things that have shaped your life and what has your life been shaped by. We're going to talk about this for at least two weeks. I could get into it next week. It could go another one. I don't know. Uh, but we will give it the time that it needs uh, so, so it causes us to ask the question, what does shape a life? What shapes a life? 
And more importantly, it causes us as Christians to ask, what shapes a godly life or a Christian life? And that's what we're going to entertain in our time together today to consider. I'm going to offer to you ultimately four characteristics of a life that is shaped by God's Word. Four characteristics. Today, uh, I plan to cover two of those characteristics, and I'm going to do my best to get to the first one, or get through the first one. So, so let's dive in. Let's look at Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to back up to verse 4, which is what we covered last week, 4, 5, and 6, as we talked about how we shape our heart. Because as the heart is shaped, so will the life be shaped. Okay? So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4, beginning in verse 4, says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. I'm going to stop there because I'm not going to make it any further than that. But the first characteristic that I want to offer us today of a life that is shaped by God's Word is simply this, is that it's a life that places Jesus as the center of the home or as the center of the family. It is a life that places Jesus as the center, not just at the center, but as the center of the home or the family. So I'm going to use these two words, home and family, today predominantly interchangeably. When I say home, I'm not just talking about a physical structure, but I'm talking about a relational structure. Okay, so the home, the family, I'm going to use those interchangeably. Moses takes the covenant and he applies it. The covenant that God has given of a new heart, one that has the word of God written on it, one that has God's presence abiding in it, and one that knows God, that is responding in relationship to God. And he impresses it upon parents to lead their home by God's ten words. That's what we see. If we go back and we look at verse 4, 5, and 6, he says this. He says, hear, O Israel. And we spent a lot of time talking about Shema last week and hearing God and how God speaks. And our first right response to relate to him is to hear him speak through his word. It says, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. We talked about that, that relationship with God is an exclusive relationship. And then we talked about how the heart is shaped. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And these words shall be upon your heart, Moses says. So when he finishes this, he says, You must shape your heart around these words. What words? The Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. But then he immediately impresses them upon parents and he says, This, you should shape your heart with them and you should shape the lives of your children with these words as well. He doesn't just tell us to remember to love God, but rather, To impress, there is pressure applied when you say to impress upon their hearts and upon their families these ten words. It's interesting to me that God doesn't say this in the scriptures to us. He doesn't say, love me, and then just leave it to be defined in any way that we find preferential for how we want to love God. Rather, God says, love me, and then he shows us how we are to love him. Why does he do this? 
Because he's already made a way possible for us to love him. And God's covenant promise always stands with his covenant commands. And what he does in the commands, he's explaining, he's unpacking and demonstrating for what he has already accomplished in the covenant promise and brought to bear. And that's what the gospel does for us. The gospel brings us to life. It makes us alive with Christ Jesus that we might read, that we might understand the word of God and make application in the physical realm for what God has already finished in the spiritual realm. And so that's this whole tension that we're trying to manage today in this whole series, really, as we engage in our spiritual growth, in our own sanctification with what God is doing. He defines and he explains love by his commands. You see, God's definition of love is never uh, an isolated feeling or a principal feeling that leads to something, but rather God's definition of love is an action that produces an affection. You've probably seen the idea before of uh, the feeling, you know, that they kind of express a thinking, being, I don't know what all of them are, but they, they say this, that the feelings are the caboose, right? That if the feelings ever become the, the engine that drives the train, it will not go where it is supposed to go. Why? Because our lives are designed for feelings to be responsive. And while they define us, they don't direct us. And what God is doing is he's saying this, listen, the truths of my commands direct your lives so that the affections that they create and produce in your lives will also be honoring and not contradictory to what I am doing in you. And so I don't in any way, I mean, if you know me very well, I'm a very, uh, shall we say, passionate kind of person. Um, if you listen to me preach very much, I, I, my passion is often on display. Usually it looks like yelling, but it's really just passion. Um, but, but this is so important because I, I can easily be driven by emotions. And, and, and what I get excited about can often run me far beyond my understanding of that. And what God is directing us to understand is this. He has commanded us in a way that is right to love Him. In a way that He is worthy of love. And in a way that we are most fulfilled in relationship with Him through loving and so love for God has specific action because God's covenant promise stands as one with his commands. And so what Moses does here is he instructs that the center of all of life with God's word in order that we might unite every aspect of our life by God's word. In other words, our lives are designed to be centered in the Word of God and not just to randomly externally apply the Word where we feel it's necessary, but rather to immerse our lives with the Word so that what grows through us and out from us is the Word of God in living form. He doesn't tell them to worship God's word. This is a way that uh, it has so often gone awry, is that the word of God has gotten worshipped. 
And what happens when the Word of God gets worshipped? We see really uh, throughout Scripture in the New Testament, but let me back up and give you some history about that. Let me talk about the Jews for just a moment and some of the things that they brought into practice that weren't wrong at first, but they became idolatry for them ultimately. This is what is known as a mezuzah. And a mezuzah is a, a, a small cylinder. Some are three or four inches long like this, and some are maybe only half this size. And, and a mezuzah has a small scroll in it, and on one side it has Deuteronomy 6, 4 through uh, 15, I believe, and Deuteronomy 13, uh, a passage from Deuteronomy 13. And on that scroll they would write that passage of Scripture in the Hebrew language, and on the back side of that they would write the word Shaddai. For El Shaddai, or God Almighty, the the Almighty One. And they would roll it up and they would place it. uh, uh, Most of those were wood back in the day, uh, like in their times. And there would be a window in the front. They would place it so the scroll would show Shaddai. But it was a reminder of what was on the scroll. And and, and if you remember what we talked about last week, that the the Shema Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That is known as the Shema. And we talked about that that is like the icon of the ten words that God gave. So when they thought of the Shema, they were thinking uh, as a representative of the whole. And really the Ten Commandments is like an outline for the whole of God's law. So the, 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 the Shema is like the icon to remind them of all of God's law. And that's what these were for. And what Moses will go on to say here in just a moment, when he says to teach them and to talk of them, to bind them, to write them. I mean, Moses is making a point, but this is how they interpret it. I know, let's write those words on a scroll. Let's put it in a small cylinder. And then they would mount these at about, at about eye level to the right side of the doorway so that when they walked into the doorway, it would always be a reminder. Every room in the house would have one of these so that every room they walked into would be a reminder of the words of God. And that's a tradition that they practice. And, and, and many of them, especially the, the, uh, those who remain faithful to the Jewish traditions, continue to practice those. There were also things called phylacteries, which were like leather. And they would place them on their head and like tie them around, a, like a bandana around their head. And it would have a small scroll or place them on the forearm. And the reason they would place them in those two positions is because those are positions of authority over the whole of life. And so what they were trying to say is, this life is governed by God's word. But what that became was this. It became what we would consider legalism. Because in John chapter 5, the Pharisees came to Jesus, and Jesus said this to them, You study the scriptures because you believe that in them is salvation. How deeply did they really believe that the scriptures and the scriptural study held salvation for them? To the extent that faithful Pharisees memorized the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's in there. Go look at this third book in the Bible. Numbers. Oh, we're supposed to read that? Right. And Deuteronomy. I'm not talking about they memorized a representative verse. They memorized those five books. And most of them did it as children. Before they ever became adults. They were seriously committed. Not only to the memorization. But to the study 
of the minutia of the word. You see, what they had done, and, and, and I'm just I'm explaining what Jesus said to them. He said, you've worshipped the scriptures, but you've missed the God that they point you to. Because you think salvation comes through the study of the scriptures, and I'm telling you the scriptures point to me, who is the Savior. And so he gives us the, the understanding of the difference here. So it, it reminds us of this. I, I'm not in any way, obviously, trying to say negative things about the Jewish faith, because we all have our own, shall we say, legalisms in ways that we take the scriptures and do harm to them and misunderstand them. But, but my point is this, that, that Moses is not purporting a method here, but rather he's making an emphasis for us today. I mean, if we're, we're honest with ourselves, we would have to say, number one, they didn't have Bibles like we have. Not even of the five books of the Old Testament, which is what was their Bible at that time. Genesis to Deuteronomy formed the whole of their Bible. But it's not like they had pocket editions, you know. Oh, hey. You know, they didn't have like a handy pocket size, go anywhere, survive anything. You know, they didn't have what we have today. It doesn't matter where you are in life. You can find a Bible that's got your trade or your craft, you know, formed on it. And it's specifically for you. And no, they didn't have that. And so these were things that reminded. They didn't have coffee table Bibles, you know, that they're so good at attracting dust. And you put them there and all the dust of the house just kind of absorbs to them and you can wipe them off and that. Don't be too convicted. They didn't fill their bookshelves with them. They didn't have six different idols on their phone, you know, where, where they, they can study the word from four or five different versions right there on their... They didn't have all these things available to them. So we understand how they got into it. What we want to understand, though, is where they went wrong and what Jesus was saying to them. And Jesus simply said this, You think that your work in studying the Scriptures brings you salvation. I'm telling you those scriptures point to me who is salvation. And that's what the gospel is all about. What I want to ask you today, though, what distinguishes your family as Christians? Those were all ways that when you saw those, you knew that these people were Jewish. Because these were traditions, if you will. They were practices that they espoused in order to identify, to distinguish them. What are the things that distinguish your family? That people would look at and go, they're distinctively Christian. I want to propose to you that, that in understanding this first characteristic of placing Jesus as the center of home and as the center of the family, I want to give you two great influences in order to really cultivate this characteristic in your life, in your home, specifically in your family. Might I just say this? Yes, the propensity of this sermon will be directed towards parents, but it is applicable across the board. If you're not yet a parent, it's a good time to learn because what's about to hit you when you become a parent, you are not ready for it. Amen, parents? Amen. I shouldn't even have to ask for that one. If you're younger than that, you say, i got to get married first. Yes, let's, let's do that too. But it, it's time for us to learn because even if you don't have children, it is a way to begin to shape your life now through the Word.
God shapes our life when his word centers every dimension of our life. And so the first great Christian influence that we can have, a parent can have specifically on their children, is to structure their home and their family life with Jesus as the center. Jesus as the center. The structure of the home, let me give you a definition so you kind of understand what I'm talking about. The structure of the home is defined by how you prioritize rhythms, how you prioritize people, and how you prioritize practices in your life. Let me say a few words about each of these. First of all, prioritizing rhythms. Predominantly, I'm talking about the schedules with which they, we keep. But I'm not only talking about schedule. It's not just an issue of time, friends. It's really an issue of time and the places with which we spend our time and how we, the, the activities even that we entertain during the spending of that time. It's the rhythms of life, the ins and outs. We get up every day and we eat breakfast and we go to work and we come home or we go into our recreation activities for the evening or we, you know, it's the ins and outs of life. And so, first of all, I want you to consider that the structure of the home is defined by how you prioritize your life in its rhythms. Likely, most of you aren't doing a lot of bad things, practices, in these rhythms. But as we've talked about before, so often in the cultural idolatry of our age, we stay so busy just doing stuff that we don't have time or energy to give to the real priorities of life. They're not stolen, they're with us, they just don't receive any priority because we stay so busy knocking off the task on the to-do list. And what I want to say to you is this, and that the rhythms of I'm not even asking you to change your rhythms today. I'm asking you to consider them and to ask, how is it that Christ needs to be brought as the center of my life? See, I believe that God created us to work. But if we separate Christ from our work, We can't honor him in or through our work. Therefore, he just becomes like a tag on to our work. So my point is, considering your vocation, your labors of life, your family life, your recreation, as you follow these rhythms, how is it that God is leading you to bring Christ to the center of those and making him the center? You know, if it is your work, I'm saying this to you, that you should work not as one to please your boss just to draw a paycheck, but rather you should work as one who works to please the Lord. That's what the New Testament teaches us as an application of the gospel and as an application even of what we're talking about here. And so, how do you bring Christ as the center of your rhythms so that you can honor Him through the obligations of life as well as the enjoyments of life? The second uh, 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 practice that, that, or excuse me, the second priority that I would encourage you to to consider in, in structuring your home life and your family life with Christ as the center is consider the people that surround, that you surround your life with. I don't want to remove the responsibility from you. Consider the people by which you bring into your life. You may bring them advertently or inadvertently, explicitly or implicitly. You, whatever the case may be, it may be a coworker that you don't really have any control over that is assigned to the desk sitting next to you that you know, you've obviously been put there as a challenge uh, because you, you two just don't jive, you know, whatever the case may be. But who is it that is brought around your life 
to speak and to be an influence that you are specifically pursuing to let them influence your life. You see, people influence you. People influence your family, whether they do it intentionally or unintentionally. And they do it by their presence. They do it uh, sometimes by the structure of life. The better you know a person, even the more rhythms that they follow begin to influence the very rhythms that you follow. My question is, in those rhythms, in those people that you are bringing near to you to influence your life, are they influencing you for godliness or are they influencing you for some other purpose? What do they say to you that encourages your relationship with the Lord? Let me ask you this. Is church the only place that you have godly people speaking the truth of God's word, encouraging you in the gospel, speaking that into your life? Is that the only place? I hope not. I hope not. Because I promise you this. If it is, you're struggling. You're struggling. You're like living in the desert all week and you're running to the oasis on the weekend just trying to suck enough in to, to make it through the next week. And, and, and God didn't intend you to live that way. He didn't intend for you to live that way. So consider, friends, the people that you're surrounding your life with. And, and here's what I want to say. It's not, you, don't just, you don't incubate with only having Christians around you. Typically, that creates a very bad environment. Very legalistic, too often more than not, and, and it, it's only got Christian in title. It, it's really something else. But you're bringing people around you that are intentionally speaking the gospel into you. And you're also bringing people into your life, or shall we say, you're going to people. This is another way to say it. So that you can be an influence. You're bringing people around you so that you can share the gospel with them. So that you can influence them for Christ. You're not just holding them at a distance, but rather you're making friends. You're, you're taking that coworker that is not a believer and, and, and you're just trying to live honestly and authentically and openly so that you might be an influence. And their influence on you, it's not like you go, no, 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 can't listen to you. You're not a Christian. I don't want to hear anything you have to say because I'm not going to let you shape my life. No, no, don't do that. But listen to their struggles. Listen to the things that they hurt over. You know what you do have in common? You're both people. And people struggle with common things. And likely some of the very things that you don't struggle with, they will struggle with so that you can encourage them and even be encouraged by them. Listen to the way that people struggle. Listen to the way that people think and the way that people process life about decisions they're trying to make and about the priorities and the values that they're bringing into their life. And then ask yourself, how can I encourage them? And in encouraging them, how can I just point them to Christ? You know, you don't have to be Billy Graham and stand up and start having a crusade right there in the middle of the workplace. But you can just give an, an encouragement of God's word, of God's truth, of God's love, and whatever that, that the Spirit of God leads you to do at that time. Consider the people that are around you. Consider the practices in which you are engaging in, especially in the home or especially with your family. You see, practices create kind of a what, I, uh, what is known as a muscle memory. And, and I, I've learned this in the last several years in, in um, studying Taekwondo. But, but, you know, at first, like it was really ugly. I don't know that it's not really ugly on me now, to be quite honest. But for me, 
it was felt very awkward to me to be doing some of the moves and learning some of the patterns and rhythms of the, the sport that I was learning. But in time, it became normal. And, and the idea is that my muscles had learned those patterns and those moves and those rhythms. And without thought, I would move in those ways. See, what I'm saying to you is what practices does your life move in that are just normal for you? Quite honestly, you've, you've learned some rhythms and practices that aren't healthy. And you, don't, you do them without even thinking about them. But the Spirit of God says to you, you need to stop that. And you know what? You need to stop that. It's going to be hard because it's normal. It's muscle memory for you. You do it without thinking. But you're going to begin to catch yourself and have to make a conscious decision of, I'm not doing that anymore because that leads me out of godliness and not into it. And you're going to have to replace it with another practice of which you engage and entertain in your life. You know, honestly, one of the best practices that you as a parent, you as an adult can begin to engage in is just simply sitting, finding a place in your house, sitting down, opening the Word of God and reading. Simple practices, taking time to sit down. Let me tell you what the hardest thing for me to start my day doing is, and that's praying. That's praying. Why? I'm a doer. I'm a goer. Man, if I'm not moving, if I'm not shaking, I, you know, I don't feel like anything's getting done. But if I don't pray, it ruins my day. If I'm not careful, I'm going to start rapping. Everything rhyming. You know? If I do that, I'm going to have to start dancing. And you do not want to see that. There is no muscle memory in my dance moves. So this is how you structure your home. How you prioritize your rhythms, how you prioritize people and your relationships with them, and how you prioritize the practices of your life. Christ will be intentionally prioritized as the center of life's structure, or he will be nothing more than an add-on. And every time Christ excuse me, is tacked on to life, he becomes very inconvenient. He's just a nag. Because you hear and you think you know what you're supposed to be doing, but you know you're not doing that. But you're not trusting to follow. And it just, that, that, that's, that's called cultural Christianity, friends. When the church really becomes more of a bother than a help. So the first priority then is to influence children with a family structure that centers on godliness. Parents, if I haven't already said it and if I forget to say it, let me say it now. The structure of your family, the structure of your home will be the single greatest influence on your child's life. Because if the structure is right, the speech will follow, which is where we're headed. If the structure is wrong, even what gets said will struggle to take root in that child's life. Nothing prioritizes a home or a family like what they give themselves to in their schedule, in their people, and in their practices. And you see, the structure of the home forms that context or that learning environment. It's the difference between this and trying to teach your kids the truths of God's Word and the gospel without letting it influence the structure of your home is the difference between a biology class in a classroom Versus an operating room. You take your textbook and you go, all right, let's open and let's read about the human heart. And you read that it has however many sections and all the little things running in and out of it. And, and you, you read in the classroom. If you move into the operating room and the doctor goes, this is a human heart. Oh, 
The information may not be identical, but the experience is unforgettable, right? It changes the way you learn. And when you structure your home by the truths of God's word, it's like an operating room versus a classroom. It experiences much more deeply. Now, let me make a couple of other comments. Because presence through activity doesn't automatically equal priority. And this is where we get in our busyness of life. That just being present doesn't automatically equal priority. It can't be a priority without being present. But let me ask this. How many times have you attended something only to walk away and not be able to remember anything about it? We've had that common experience, right? For me, that's called high school. See, priorities should not only receive your presence, but they should be given adequate preparation and participation. Preparation and participation. Parents, here's where I'm going with this. Before we read verse 7 of Deuteronomy 6, where he says what? He says, Teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. Bind them as a sign. Write them on the doorpost. What does he say in verse 6? These words I command you today shall be upon your heart. You, parents, cannot put something in your kids that is not first in you. Now, I have a whole rabbit trail, a, a, a vision at our church that says this. We're not really interested in just addressing a part of the family. We're not really interested in just going out and bloating some part of our church. I want to reach kids for Christ. I want to reach students for Christ. I want to reach young adults, college students. I want to reach men and women for Christ. But listen, I want to reach the whole of the family. Because here's what we know. That the ability to engage them for the long haul with the gospel of Jesus Christ goes up exponentially higher when mom and dad are leading the charge. As biblically it is supposed to be, as this passage is all about. And what I'm saying to you, mom and dad, I don't want you to be condemned by it, but I do want to challenge you with it. If you're trying to put something into your kid that you know good and well is not in you, it's not going to work. They'll get some of it. But there's a high probability that it will embitter them against the church as much as engage them with the church. Taking your kids or more likely making your kids go to church so they can get some good teaching greatly reduces the effectiveness and will only likely cause God to become more of a frustration for them. Why? Because they'll say this, mom and dad don't make it a priority. Why is it going to be a priority for me when I get older? And if it's not going to be a priority for me then, why should it be now? I'm not saying there's no good that will come from it, but I'm focusing on the influence of it. When God is not shaping the heart of dad and mom, they can do nothing more than press religion upon the child's heart. And some of you had that religion pressed on your heart. You didn't see the reality of the gospel in the home, and therefore it caused you to question it everywhere else when you were told to listen to it. The second great Christian influence is this, not only the structure of the home, but parents can have 
a strong Christian influence on their child's life when they speak the word of God as the center of your family. You see, the speech of the home places the word of God at the center of the family. The distinction I want to make here, the structure of the home places Jesus as the center. In other words, he determines the priorities of the home. The speech of the home places the word of God at the the center. Do you see the difference there? In other words, you worship Jesus by the way you structure your life. You study and you take in the word so that you can worship Jesus through the speech. Slight but important distinction for us to make in the midst of this. When God's word is the center of the family, Jesus influences all things at all times. And so you're constantly bringing the gospel and the truth of God's word to bear upon your life. You're asking questions in such a way and you're making discernments and decisions in such a way so that God can be honored through that. Continual, what I'll say, God-shaped speak is essential in the home. I, I'll tell you, in our home, Kristen is great at this. I need her help. I'm just, just I'm confessing to you right now. She's much better at this than I am. Why? Because I am situationally focused, and when a situation arises, I am fixing it as quickly as possible. So it will not disrupt my life, and I can continue what I was doing. When it arises, Christian, Kristen, excuse me, I can't even say my wife's name, Kristen is relationally focused, and she sees beyond the immediacy or the outside of it to what's going on with the kid or what's taking place in this situation, and she like stays focused and cool and calm in the midst of all of it, usually just in the midst of me flying off the handle. But she's able to bring it back, and, and she is a reminder to me. I, I kind of look to her for cues, you know, because she reminds me, and I go, okay, all right, this is what we got to do here. And so we work together to bring the Word of God to bear upon the situation. And it's not like we have a Bible study every time something erupts in the home. But we do ask this question, what does God's Word say in regards to this? And I promise you our children are going to hear that. And, and, and if it's something hard that we have to do, like discipline them, they are going to hear, this hurts me more than it hurts you. They're going to hear that because that's the first thing I heard from my parents all the time, and I just like saying it <clears throat> instead of just hearing it. But then after that, they're also going to hear, you know, I, it's not that we want it to be this way or that way, but, but God's Word says that we're responsible for you. We love you, and we're doing this because we want you to understand how much God loves you. And when we go to encourage our kids, man, we, we try to encourage our kids, not just with our words. You're good. It's okay. Don't worry. I mean, we have things, we have little phrases we say to them, but we try to bring the word of God to bear so that they see themselves not just in light of mama and daddy, but in light of God's word and what God's word says about them. You see, Christian parents teach their children God's word in order to shape their lives, to be like Jesus. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have found yourself saying, well, I'll tell you what my dad said. I'll tell you what my mom used to say. Or even worse, the situation erupts and all of a sudden you go, blah, 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 blah. And you go, that's what my mother always said. Or that's what my dad always said. Why? Because that voice in your head has defined in so many ways the parameter with which you see what's taking place. You can't get that voice out of your head and your heart. Now, 
let me qualify this because my experience in pastoring has taught me that I need to. Some of you have a very broken voice that is the only voice of your mother and father that you heard in your life. And you hear that voice. As a matter of fact, you've lived a large part of your life trying to stop hearing that voice. And what I want to say to you is this. That voice does not define you. And God gave a voice to shape you for godliness that was not used in that way. But the gospel redeems that. Do you understand there's hope there? I have seen God work in these ways. And He can replace that voice that condemned you, that told you you were dumb, you were stupid, you were ugly, whatever the voice is, whatever the deception is, God will replace that by His Spirit with the truth of His Word. And the Spirit of God will be more of a defining voice in your heart and in your head than the voice of the one that made you believe that. So understand that I want to labor for that today too. But parents, I want to help prioritize this for you. God relates to us in all ways first by speaking and commanding us to hear. And I want to say to you in applying this passage that your voice is the first instrument to raise and to guide your children for godliness. It's not the only instrument, but it is the first. For the God-ordained role that He gave to us Understanding how we relate to Him. We influence our children for the sake of Christ through first and foremost our voice. It's a voice of authority, of instruction, teaching, rebuke, correction, training, a model, an example, a source for encouragement and a source for strength. And the list goes on and on. And when you are gone and you are not with them, it will be your voice that cannot dismiss, that invades their thinking, that shapes their conscience, and that pervades their perspective. There are things I can hear my mom and my dad say right now, my grandmother, my grandfather, even my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother. Why? Because they were just things they always said to me. And I can't forget them. They may lose you, mom and dad. We know we're finite. We will pass from this world. Our influence may not, uh, uh, will cease. And surely even if they move out and start their own family, we will not be immediately present with them. But they cannot lose your voice and the wisdom, the counsel, and the direction that comes from it. They will seek it and desire it. And so I apply this by saying repetition breeds remembrance. What you repeatedly repeat Yes, that was intentional. What you repeatedly repeat to your children will be what they remember. It will be what shapes their thinking. Children are shaped by what parents say, by how you say it, and by how often you say it to them. And so what is pressed upon the heart of dad and mom will be taught to the children, either explicitly or implicitly. And friends, I, I want to conclude in this way, just by saying this. Our children need to hear our voices. They need to hear God's word coming. I don't care what age your kids are. It's never too late to start. It's never too early to begin. They need to hear the word of God through this unique voice that is given a position of influence in their lives to shape them for godliness. 
And if we're going to raise up a generation that knows the Lord and that loves Him, that enjoys the fullness of His blessing, it begins right here. Right here. It begins in the home. No one else is responsible. More or first or above mom and dad. I'm going to ask the worship team to return. There are few topics that I can preach on that can create more condemnation for two reasons. Number one, parents, and it is hard. It is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I had great role models, generations deep and wide, even into Christian's family. It's hard. But when you preach a sermon like this, mom and dads automatically default to everything they do wrong. They see that. I don't do this right. I'm not any good at that. I've done this some, but it didn't work. And, you know, and so you automatically see everything you do wrong. And what I'm saying to you today is do not do that. That's a temptation that you just need to refuse it's not about what you've gotten wrong because the greatest influence you will have for the gospel and for the truths of God's word are not how you perfectly perform them, but rather how submitted your children see you to them. So as they hear you repent and as they hear you confess and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And then get in your room and shut the door and don't come out until I come get you. You know, it doesn't mean you don't get to discipline them. It means they need to hear what repentance sounds like. They need to see what repentance looks like. They need to experience what repentance and giving forgiveness feels like. You see, that's the point. God didn't make you a parent because you were perfectly equipped to do it. God made you a parent because He ordained you for it. And what He called you to, He will equip you for. So entertain, engage what God is calling you to. The gospel will never be greater in your heart, mom and dad, than when you're fighting to impress it on the heart of your children. You will understand the love of Father God, hopefully for the first time, or for some of you who had a father who completely perverted the fatherness of God. You will understand his love for you in a whole new way. You will see as he redeems your heart and your mind how, how much he really does love you and how much he, he wants good for you. Why? Because that's what you want for your child and that's what you're laboring for. And when you see your brokenness, when you see your imperfections, you press into you press the word upon your own heart all the more as you're applying the pressure of it to your child's life and you realize God's doing this in us he's changing our home one life one heart at a time that's what we're calling you to today and I know that the pressure to be condemned and see all your imperfections is very great and I want to labor in the gospel right now to call you not to focus on your imperfections, but to focus on the grace of God and to press it upon your heart that you might apply the pressure upon your whole family, not only through your structure, but also through your speech.
So here's how we're going to do that. We're going to come to the table. The symbol that reminds us of the grace of God in our life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ that was shed, the body that was broken for all your parenting imperfections, for all of your personal imperfections. Set them aside and go, God, I know I don't have to perform perfectly because you did for me. It's finished. It's done. But I enter into that today and I place my trust in you to follow you by faith in what you've called me to do. That's what I want to do. Dads, be a great day to start leading your children to the table and taking that pastoral role of the home as God's called you to. It would be a great day if you need help to go seek somebody out and go, would you pray for me? Bring, bring someone, bring a person around your life intentionally who will help you in the gospel to encourage you, to encourage your family. Do not let condemnation rule today. Do not give in to that because the gospel is greater. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond. Heavenly Father, help us. Oh God, I feel the weight. And I know that you've already felt it. So help us to press the weight of condemnation, throwing it off because you've already bore it for us, and to take on the joy of your yoke that you give to us. Help us not to hear the voices that lie and deceive us, but to listen to your word and the spirit that brings us into truth. Encourage us in this today. Friends, we will be here for prayer and counsel if we can minister to you in that way. And we invite you to come to the table. If if you're a Christian and, and by faith you know that Christ has saved you and you're seeking to follow Him, come and be reminded through the Lord's Supper today of His goodness and His grace in your life. As the worship team leads us, let's stand together.